Thanks for restoring us. It's a relationship with you um, and Christ. And I pray that you would uh, be with John as he comes and talks to us and gives us uh, your word. Um, I pray that you would give us ears to hear um, and hearts uh, to live out what we learn by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Kind of a thin crowd here this morning. You guys must have been told I was preaching. No, it's the, it's the Thailand team. That's what it is. Um, I just, it's been a great few weeks in preparation. You know, I always, my flesh always kind of resists this because um, it's work, um, it's hours of preparation, and um, takes time away from other things. But uh, man, I never look back and think, gosh, I regret that. I think most of the time I'm, I'm the one that's the most blessed from it. So, um, our passage this morning is, is 1 Corinthians 9. Um, if you guys want to turn there, we'll pray here real quick again and we'll get into it. Father, I just stand on the blood of the one that we're gathered here to worship this morning. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our King. Lord, we want to lift you up. We want to learn from you, God. We want your Spirit to speak to us. We want to know truth and not just know it, God. We want to live it. You've called us to a life of love. You've called us to be different from this world. God, it's our testimony. Help us to do that, Lord. Help me this morning to convey truth. God, you've been so faithful to reveal yourself to me in preparation. I just pray that I'd get out of your way and just communicate, Lord, what you've revealed in love, in boldness, and truth. God, I pray that we all would receive it joyfully this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So, um, by the way, Daniel's leaving us. I think it was August, Daniel. Where is he? August? Is that when you're taking off? So we need to be praying for someone to replace Daniel because we are going to miss that guy. Um, Corey, man, you need to be practicing. Someone. <laughs> but, uh, um, just really appreciate you, man, filling in for Jay. And I'm just uh, really, really blessed. You probably underestimate what you mean to this church. But uh, Corey, same way with the bass man. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18. Um, we're kind of, we're, as you know, we're, we're continuing on um, in our study. Um, not a fan, I guess. But, uh, um, we've got another lengthy passage uh, this morning, but as, as Dylan kind of alluded to last week, um, the way this letter is organized, uh, really, last week's sermon could have included this passage as well, um, because Paul really doesn't shift to another theme for, for quite some time. Um, instead, he just kind of continues to develop this idea of, of living in consideration of others, um, this idea of putting others first no matter the cost, this idea of living in freedom in Christ, um, which is what we have, um, but it's not necessarily what we should focus on. And, and what we find here is that many in Corinth, or at least some, um, probably some influential people at the very least, were, uh, were focusing on this, and they were, they were casting love aside in the name of their freedom in Christ. And so, um, if you remember in chapter 8, while Paul was addressing this, he was um, talking about loving and considering others. He focused on a very uh, specific example that the Corinthians had to deal with, um, and that was 
those who were eating meat sacrificed to idols um, and all that surrounded it. Dylan went into that last week. Um, there were those who were coming out of certain lifestyles, um, some pagan, some Jewish. I mean, Paul would go to the synagogue first thing most of the time if there was one, and he saw converts uh, from that effort. And so we had people coming from all these different backgrounds, um, and some were offended by watching their fellow brothers in Christ go to these temples, go and eat this meat that was sacrificed to an idol, and it was it was really bruising them um, and hindering them in their faith. And um, Paul explains it wasn't those things in and of themselves that were sinful. It wasn't going to the temple to eat meat sacrificed to an idol that was necessarily sinful before God, but it was the attitude of indifference that was being shown by some toward those weaker brothers who thought those things were sinful. And so this is where we are. He's trying to teach the Corinthians, um, the Christians, his readers, us, um, that their freedom, their liberty in Christ must always submit to the law of love. Always. Even if it meant going to extremes. Even if it meant that they would abandon what many saw as really a harmless activity. And what even Paul said was, before God, not sinful. Um, now you think about extremes. What, why, why people do extreme things in life. Um, because this is pretty extreme, really, um, what Paul's asking them to do. And Normally, people do extreme things when there's a lot on the line, right? I mean, this, it kind of forces us to, to extreme sometimes when, when there's a lot at stake. Um, for instance, people do crazy and extreme things to, to win big prizes and money. Like, that's a motivation. Like, hey, you want a big cash prize and you might be willing to do something a little more out there, a little more dangerous or publicly embarrassing, you name it. Some people do things just to get on TV. That's a big deal. That's really valuable to people, so they'll do crazy, weird things to be on TV. You take it to another level. I don't know if Jason's with us this morning, but you think about firefighters. I mean, firefighters run into burning buildings to save other people. Um, it can be an extreme job because what you're dealing with is the preservation um, of human life. And human life is really valuable. It's really valuable. Um, we hear stories of parents who have literally drowned while saving their children from the same fate. We go to extremes, guys. We, we're no stranger to that. And we go usually when there's a lot on the line when there, and when there's a lot to lose. So in chapter 8, we have Paul telling his readers basically to go to the extreme if they have to, to love our brothers no matter what it takes. He's telling us to be willing to take extreme measures, even if it means forfeiting our Christian rights and freedoms in order to love each other and to preserve the unity of the body. Because when it comes to the unity of the church, guys, when it comes to the body of Christ, there is a lot on the line. A lot, more than we probably realize. But at this point in time, it seems as, as though the Corinthians really wanted to focus more on their extreme freedom in Christ. Um, so much so that they were twisting it to serve themselves. Um, Paul intends to correct this error. He, he, he sees their, their freedom was no freedom at all if they return again to the self-centered slavery of their former life. He's trying to show them this. So here in chapter 9, Paul continues to develop this instruction um, concerning the, kind of the practical outworking of walking in freedom. Freedom we have in Christ while also walking in the love of Christ. And there's a fine line sometimes. You guys, it's not a new instruction, by the way. Um, this is something we've been told for a long time. The Bible has been telling us this for, from beginning to end. Um, but you, you, for instance, you look at what Jesus said to the Pharisees um, when he was asked what the greatest commandment was. What was his response? It wasn't, well, just be free and mean. That wasn't, that wasn't his response. What was his response? It was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
Guys, our freedom is a state of being. We are justified in Christ. We are. That's our position. Our call to love is a state of living. It's what we do. Or at least it's what we should do. And if our freedom in Christ ever causes us to act in an unloving and inconsiderate way towards our fellow man, then we, we too aren't exercising biblical freedom at all. But rather, just like the, some, some in Corinth, we're choosing the bondage of our former life and the slavery to self. We're following ourselves. Galatians 5, 13 and 14 says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus over in Matthew 22, in that conversation with the Pharisees I just alluded to, says the same thing. And then he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. That's huge. On these two commandments, love God and love people. Everything hinges on that. Some translations will say they, they hinge on that. It's connected. It's all connected. I mean, it's, we don't read the Bible that way so often, guys. We, we, we just don't. We don't approach the Word. And like, how, how can this move me to loving God and loving my brother? Jesus said it all hinges on that. It all hinges. We need to think that way. So Paul just gets right to the heart of the issue. Um, the Corinthians wanted specific answers to specific questions. And what was Paul's response? Basically, how about you just love people? What's implied there is loving God. He's speaking to believers. So we assume they love God or he wouldn't be writing the letter to them. How about you just love people? That's what God, God's will is for our life. That's how he sums it up in Galatians. He doesn't include loving God with all your heart. He's writing to believers. He's assuming that's, that's in place. The hard part is practically working that out and loving people and putting them before yourself. Guys, that's what God's will is for our life. I mean, talk about a guiding principle. This is the Christian life. Jesus said all the law and the prophets depend on this. Paul said the whole law is fulfilled in this. Love and serve one another and provide for and focus on each other's needs. The greatest need being the gospel. The greatest need being the gospel, which is why we are commissioned to go and to tell the world, because that is the most loving thing we can do. That's why we've spent thousands of dollars to send people to Thailand to do that. And I'm hearing, already hearing great reports, guys. Keep praying for those guys. But some in Corinth, like myself at times, um, we're using their freedom as an excuse to serve themselves. We're all guilty of that. And Paul isn't going to let that slide, guys, and neither should we. Neither should we. So here we are in chapter 9, where he's still driving this point, but now he shifts to a very personal example, um, one that deals kind of with his own behavior towards the church. Because Paul wasn't one to just talk about how we should live as Christians. He actually tried to practice what he preached. Paul was pretty, pretty radical. And he wants to convey this to us, not because he wants the glory but because he wants us to see the importance of what he's talking about. Of loving our brothers in Christ, even if it means sacrificing our own rights, our own freedom. And he wants us to see the importance of this extreme love that he is speaking of, so he shows us a personal example of what this looks like in his life. Guys, these aren't just words. Paul's bought in. He's saying, look, I'm not just telling you, I'm not just speaking, like I'm living this, and I, and I want to show you. Not to prop myself up, but to, to, to show you what this love looks like. This is a way of life for him. Guys, and, this, and it should be the way of life for us. It's what we've been called to. And so what does he talk about? Probably one of the most sensitive topics you could possibly talk about. Which is money. Um, 
and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're not talking directly about giving or tithing. Um, if that's where we were, if that was the section we were dealing with, we would talk about that. Um, that's what happens when you preach ex- expositionally. You can't dodge the things that you think are going to make people squirm or make people get mad and leave. Um, if someone's teaching the word in truth and you get mad and leave, man, there's a deeper issue. So let's just all agree that like this is God's word and it's in here, so we should talk about it, right? Um, in context, in truth, but we should talk about it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to kind of cut right to the chase. Um, we're not going to talk about tithing and, and giving. We're going to talk about paying the pastor. And so um, it's, it was a fun one to prep. It's very, very practical. Um, but it's in here, guys. And so, so we, need to, we need to look at it um, because it's the inspired Word of God. So um, just to set the record straight, um, I don't receive... Um, any monetary wages from Sojourn. I'm not up here asking for a raise. I'm the only guy, actually, that doesn't. So, yeah, I'm real appreciated. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I've opted out on that. So, uh, but you know, even if I was paid, guys, once again, like I, we would be up here talking about it, and Dylan would be up here talking about it because God's word is talking about it. So we're going to do that. Um, now. The thing is, why, why is it that we don't want to talk about money? I mean, it, it is a very sensitive topic in the church. Hey, let's go ahead and cue the video. I'm going to show you an example of why we First don't. Not for everyone, but it's a particular person. You should have moved a long time ago. You're missing it. And your family is suffering by it. That's a word. As surely as I'm speaking by the Spirit of God, that is a word for a person right now. That is God penetrating your heart. It's burning on the inside of you, and you need to make a vow of faith of a thousand dollars. Oh, Bob, couldn't you say twenty-five? No, you can't make a thousand-dollar vow of faith. I'm saying in faith. So we got people that don't have teenagers that have no, hardly nothing going for them. They got enough faith to make a thousand dollar vow and send a little five dollars here and ten dollars there as God begins to move like a whirlwind in their life. Slighten it up a little bit, real quick. Um, actually, guys, that's really sad. That's really sad. That guy is in about as bad a condition as you can be because he's standing in the place of a preacher of God's word. And he's spewing out stuff that's straight out of hell. I mean, read Jude. It's a short book, one chapter. And pray for him. His name's Robert Tilton. Um, All kinds of allegations surrounding his life, by the way. Cocaine, money laundering. Um, It looked like he was pretty coked up in that one. Um, Or something was about to crawl out of his skin. But uh, at any rate, these guys, guys like this, uh, another guy recently who has, um, in, in the name of bringing the gospel to the nations, has asked his con- congregation to fund the $65 million jet. It's kind of gone viral. You know who I'm talking about. Um, wow. I'm sure he has no intention to use that jet for personal reasons. $65 million jet to go spread the gospel. Can you see how we have so twisted it and how wolves have come in and have caused even people who love God and want to hear from His Word to kind of shrink back when it comes to this topic. And, I mean, rightfully so. But, we're not going to. We're going to talk about it. Um, so, once again, I'm not, I'm not receiving... Uh, I'm not going to get a raise out of this thing. Um, but, uh, it, it is something we need to address. So, here it is. If we talk about it the way God wants to talk about it, guys, it's not only right, but it's necessary. 
Um, this is God's word to, to us. It's instructive. It's corrective. It's going to clear the air. It's going to help us clarify what he thinks about money, not what guys like Bob Tilton think about money. Um, and we need to heed every single word. Guys, especially, honestly, especially when it comes to money, because we live in a world that worships it. It's a huge idol, if not the biggest idol. I would think there's an argument to say that it is. Um, and God wants to show us how to handle it in a way in which He still receives the glory. Guys, that's what can separate us. That's another way we can be separate from this world. We can show people that like, money serves us. We don't serve money. God has given us jobs. He's given us abilities to make money so that we can provide for ourselves, so that we can provide for the needs of the church, so that we can get the gospel out. But it serves us. We don't serve it. And that's the attitude. That's the approach. So... Here in the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 9, and he's still, once again, we're still in this vein of putting others before ourselves. Paul begins with a series of, of rhetorical questions where he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? Are you not the result of my ministry? Paul's saying, in other words, if you want to speak of your Christian freedom, I understand. But wouldn't you say then that I'm free? I mean, I'm an apostle, which means I've seen Jesus and was directly commissioned by Him and have done the works of an apostle. Um... So, when you say I'm free, I mean, you guys are proof of that. If I'm free, then, then surely I'm in that group. If, if you're free, then surely I'm in that group, right? Paul's saying there, there may be some out there, and there were, who have begun to question me, but you should know better, because I've been your spiritual father this whole time. So if you're free, then surely I'm free. And then in verse 3, I think he's actually referring back to verses 1 and 2. Some people think that's kind of a springboard to the next thought, but I think he's actually referring back to 1 and 2 when he says, this is my defense to those who would call me into question. In other words, guys, this is my credibility. I am a true apostle, regardless of what some are saying. And you are the proof of that. This is my defense. You've come to Christ through my ministry. And so his argument builds, and he continues to establish kind of his own set of rights. In verse 4, he begins with a question about his own right to eat and drink. He says, do I have that right? Surely if, I, if, if others do, then I do. You see, Paul had chosen to work and pay his own way. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. Probably for many different reasons. But what he's saying here is that it wasn't for lack of his right to expect it. He had the right to expect the church to pay for his daily provisions, just as the other apostles did. They were eating and drinking on the church's tab. They were traveling. Their ministries were fully funded by the church. And then in verse 5, he speaks about his right to a wife and the right to take her along, just as the other apostles of Peter do. Once again, um, this was common to the other apostles. They had wives, they had families. He says, do I have that right? Surely if they do, I do. And really what he was communicating, guys, is that not only did the other apostles take their wives with them, but their wives were also provided for by the church. So the other apostles were actually getting full provision made by the church for their whole families as they traveled and did ministry. They received enough income to live, them and their whole families. He's saying, look guys, it's not a question of my rights. Of course I have the right to these things, and it would be okay if I chose to receive these things. In verse 6, he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Of course the implied answer here is, of course not. Um, he keeps going in verse 7. Guys, these are very, very direct. We're kind of flying through these first few verses. but Verse 7, he presents three very common examples um, on a very human level. Um, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And then in verse 8, he says, do I say these things on human authority? 
In other words, you guys know that this is how things just normally work in the world. I mean, I'm just saying these things on human authority. Simple stuff, right? I mean, I can't really add to what Paul has said here without saying the exact same thing. He gets so specific. But it's just all sensible stuff. You know, you go to work, you get a living. You, you, you plant the field, you get the crops. Like, it's just how it works. But then he goes on in verse 8 to say, does not the law say the same thing? So he's appealed to the way things just are in the world. And now he's taking it to another level. He's taking it to the way things should be. And there's a difference, obviously. He's talking about the law. You see how he's building his case. You just have to love um, how the Spirit uses Paul. He knew how to build a case. He knew how to build an argument. Because it was true. He was operating in truth. I mean, it really shouldn't have been hard, and it shouldn't be hard for us, to just look around us um, and just understand that this is the way the world works. But we know, guys, that sometimes the way things just are, the way the world works, might not be the way things should be. So Paul doesn't just leave it there. He refers to the ultimate guide, the law. That's how things should be, right? Verses 9 and 10, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So what he, what, what he does here is he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. Um, and you guys can go back and read that later. But what, 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 it, what it is, is the Israelites, basically, they had an interesting way of separating corn from the husk. And some people believe that they may have actually borrowed that uh, little method from the, from the Egyptians. I'm not exactly sure about that, but... Um, seems like maybe they did. It um, doesn't really matter. But anyway, they'd, they'd gather up all the corn and they'd spread it out and then they'd, they'd harness up an ox or some oxen to, to a big flat around stone. And they would just let these oxen just drag this stone around in this flat area. And, and the stone would drag over the corn and it would kind of smash up the corn so the husk and the grain would kind of begin to separate. And then after that, the people would just come in behind these oxen and they would just grab what was left. They kind of stand kind of next to the edge. If it was a pin or something, they just throw it up in the air, figure out which way the wind's blowing, throw it up in the air, and the husk would just kind of blow away. And the heavier grain would just fall straight down. And so that's how they separated. That's how they quickly separated um, the corn from the husk. So interesting little, uh, interesting little thing that they did. And, and Paul's using this. He's quoting Deuteronomy twenty-five four. Um, to show them, like, guys, that, like, you wouldn't muzzle an ox. Like, we, we, we don't do that. Why not? Because you'd have a frustrated ox on your hands, at the very least. And then, at the very most, you'd have an angry large animal on your hands. I mean, that, that, could, that could probably end up hurting someone eventually. And rightfully so. I mean, this ox is doing all this work. I mean, he just wants a few little pieces of corn. Like, let him have it. Everything works a lot better. It's his reward for his work. And... If we were to go on and read Deuteronomy 25, we see that the chapter deals with mainly with social and economic relationships between men. Okay, and then this verse is just kind of in there. It's kind of just bang. It's just there. Um, and the fact that it's right there in that context means that Moses was primarily thinking about men here, not oxen. Um, and Paul's question at the, at the end of verse 9 where he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? That doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't care about oxen. I mean, for those of you who have a soft spot for oxen, um, but that he cares more about people, right? So what Paul is saying is, that it is not that God doesn't care about oxen. We know he feeds the birds of the air, according to Matthew 6. He cares about his, all of his creation, all of it. What I believe Paul and Moses are both saying is that if this is morally right for oxen, for animals, 
then how much more for men? I mean, he is taking it down to like the lowest level of understanding. Like, come on, this is just how it should work, even on a natural level. So in verse 10, he says, Does God not certainly speak for our sake? Or does he not certainly speak for our sake, speaking of God? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So guys, if the oxen can set their hope on the reward for grain for their labor, then shouldn't men be able to set their hope on a reward for their labor? We just, I mean, it's just once again, the lowest example in oxen, but, but what about the highest example? What about the highest example we have of this? Hebrews 12 tells us that even Jesus set his heart on the reward. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and you can read it. His eyes were fixed on the reward. If it's good for Jesus, it's good for us, right? If it's good for oxen, it's good for us. Like, it's just the way things should work. And also, just a little side note, if you don't work, you probably shouldn't get a reward. Just a little side note there. Things don't work very well when you try to reward people for not working. Um, so you see this principle all throughout Scripture. In verse 11 and 12, you kind of see Paul kind of captures the rabbit. You know, this is kind of a, a rabbit trail that he gets on, but it's, it's a good one. I mean, it's an example. He's using it, but he's kind of going in depth on it. So like this example that he's using, he's also offering teaching about this specific example as well. And so he kind of, he kind of captures the rabbit before he gets back on the trail in 13. And he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not do not we even more? Once again, guys, you see, you see how he's crafted his argument. He shows us the natural order, the human order, and then he shows us the law and how this principle even applies to the animal kingdom. And then he escalates it to how it would then surely apply to those leading in the church. And you, you see, we work because we need to eat and have clothing and shelter and the basic necessities of life. And so a soldier with his post in mind... Um, with his reward in mind, serves his post. And, and, and a vine grower plants a vineyard with, with, with this in mind, knowing that there'll be a reward. There'll be some grapes. There'll be some produce, something. A shepherd tends his flock with this in mind, the reward. He's not just working for nothing. It's a very practical, very practical thing this morning. Think about today. Teachers, attorneys, doctors, roofers, accountants, all these work in different ways, knowing that these activities, these occupations serve as a means to a practical end, and that being survival, really. I mean, the reward of provision for us needed to live in the world. So to this point, um, you see these examples relate to the temporary, pretty much the earthly realm, where we as Christians certainly exist and need instruction for sure, but not where we truly live. It's not in that realm. Our life is found in another realm. And so in 11 and 12, he kind of drives it home. He says, if others who provide earthly services in exchange for earthly provisions, share this rightful claim on you, then do we, who provide spiritual services for spiritual provisions, share this claim? You guys, we're, we're all probably sitting here this morning so far in, in full agreement with what Paul's saying here. It's pretty practical. I mean, if we, you, if we view God's Word as the ultimate authority, then, and we at Sojourn do, it's, it's pretty hard to miss the point. But I find it interesting that Paul himself spends so much time defending the right of pastors to be paid when he himself chooses not to be paid. I mean, it is kind of interesting, right? So I think the Spirit leads him this direction because God knows us all too well. And he, he knows that, for instance, we would probably be prone to look at Paul's example and then think of it as kind of a higher level of ministry. Or, or, or you know, a, the goal that all super spiritual pastors should strive for. You know, to be like Paul. Like, yeah, you can be paid, but if you really want to be elite, then you'll do it and you'll work on your own just like Paul did. 
Guys, that's not, that's not the case. And I think this is why God is, is moving Paul to go into such detail on this. Because it's not the goal for pastors. It doesn't make you a more elite pastor or a more spiritual pastor to choose not to receive a salary. God's saying you should. You should receive a salary. And he wants us to understand here that Paul does, that he's the exception, not the rule. It's not what we should expect of our pastors, especially here in a country where we are so blessed financially to be able to support our pastors. So I want to bring this to bear for this, for this particular church, for Sojourn. Um, as many of you know, we have four pastors here. Um, and we intend to continue to add to that. We haven't decided that four is enough. We want to continue to identify leaders and pastors that can come and help us serve the body. Um, but right now we have four. Um, three of them are paid. Dylan's our full-time guy. Um, Jim is part-time, and Jay receives a, a stipend for his involvement with the youth and what he does up here every Sunday and leading us in, in singing. Um, and I'll admit, guys, early on, um, when I was the only pastor, uh, we really had no plans to begin paying a pastor. Um, we, we weren't against it. We saw the Scripture clearly taught it. It was okay. But we were clicking along, and, and we kind of liked the idea of a lay-led approach. I mean, uh, you know, there were some good things that came from that. I remember a conversation I had with a neighbor of mine. He was not a believer. He was a medic in Vietnam. And so he, I think he's still probably trying to overcome some of the stuff he saw um, over there. Crazy, crazy stuff. And he's not even shared with me very much, but um, just had a pretty hard life. And so he's just kind of hardened and has a lot of questions. And so we're just talking about different things. And, and, and then the church was brought up. And just kind of out of nowhere, he kind of blurted out something to the effect of, yeah, yeah these pastors at these churches, they, they're just in it for the money. And I'm sure he probably caught a Robert Tilton sermon at some point in time or someone like him. And for that guy, he was right. But that's what he says. You know, they're just in it for the money. And then, you know, that's a valid complaint. Um, there's a lot of so-called shepherds out there who are only in it for the fleece. And actually, I think the biblical term for those guys is wolf. And there are plenty of them. God tells us there will be. Um, we just saw an example. So my neighbor just kind of, he kind of blurts this out and I'm sitting there thinking, oh yeah, I've got him on this one. Because at the time, I was the only guy preaching. Of course, we, we, we started Sojourner with the intention to add pastors. But at that time, I was still the only one. So I kind of thought, well, I, I, I've got him on this one. So I, I kindly informed him that, you know what, man, I, I really don't take a salary. And, and our church is lay-led. And we, we're happy. It's good. God's blessing us. He's using us. Um, of course, needless to say, the subject was quickly changed. And so we went on to something else. Um, and I'll admit, I guess that, that kind of felt good to be able to say that, to be able to, I guess more than anything, to be able to rebut a statement like that. But I'm not sure if it impacted that guy or not. May have, I don't know. But let's place that conversation in today's context. Like who we are today. What could I have said to his comment today? Because we do have a guy that we're paying. We have three guys that we're paying but I'll single Dylan out because he's our primary teaching pastor, as you guys know, and he's our only full-time salary guy, so we'll use him. Um, but here's what I would say today. You know, I agree that there are those who try to use their position and title as pastor to get rich. And if that's their motivation, I would venture to say that they probably don't know Jesus, much less how to lead a church in a way that's pleasing to God. However, there are many still yet that understand the gravity of the position. We have... One, we have four here. We understand it. We're not perfect in our understanding, but we, we get the goal. It's not to be rich. 
A lot of people think that, unfortunately. But there are plenty out there who get it. They, they understand the responsibility of the role, of the, the, the value of the church in God's eyes. They understand the job, the good and the bad. And, and guys, these are the guys on the payroll at Sojourn, let me assure you. If it were about money for these guys, they'd be gone. I mean, they'd be gone. They understand the absolute necessity of the ministry of the Word and the call to teach it and preach it and love, among other things. And I could go on and on, but you get what I'm saying, guys. There are many out there who get it and are in full-time pastors for the right reasons. And what I would want to communicate to my neighbor more than anything is that the role of the pastor, listen guys, the role of the pastor is a vital, a vital one to the local body. And it should be a valuable one. should be a valuable one. And it's okay if, if it costs something. Most things that are valuable in life come at a cost. A high cost, if it's valuable, right? And we should provide for the men that have devoted their lives to rightly fulfilling that role because it's valuable for this life and the life to come. There's an eternal value to this that really can't be measured in income. You think about it, guys. For many, the pastor is the main source of spiritual food for the believer. We can read books, we can read and study the Word for ourselves, but God has so ordained it, God has so ordained it, that pastors are a primary way, and for most, the primary way, we receive teaching from God's Word. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Who gave the pastors and teachers? Did the church just come up with this on their own? Did, did men just meet and have a think tank? And no. Paul says here in Ephesians that God gave. God gave these men to the church for this purpose. For equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. Guys, that's a big deal. Is it not? The church is God's primary means of getting the gospel message to a lost world. It's His primary means of loving people. He works through His church. We are His hands and feet. And, and Paul says God has given pastors and teachers to build that up, to strengthen that, to equip that, to do it well. That's valuable. You see guys, God has saved us to good works. He's saved us unto good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. He's saved us into the work of the ministry which is a ministry of love, as we are seeing here in 1 Corinthians. And His Word says that, that He will equip us for that ministry through the shepherds and teachers that He's given to the church. Show me a pastor, guys. Show me a pastor who is faithful and diligent in his approach to the Word. And most of the time, I'll show you a church that's growing. And I don't mean numerically all the time, although many times that happens as well. But I'll, I'll, you'll see a church that's growing. You'll see people that are growing in Christ, whose lives are changing. How many of you feel like you're coming to a better understanding of what the Scripture teaches? I mean, it's happening, right? I know, it's kind of awkward to raise your hand during Sunday morning. We used to do that. But I would think if you guys have been here for very long, you would freely admit, yeah, I'm learning. And it's awesome. Because it's what we need. It's our food. It keeps us alive. We should willingly... 
and joyfully provide for the men through whom this ministry of the Word is coming. Because it's valuable. And God's good content on Sunday morning doesn't come easy. It doesn't. I've, I've been in churches where guys just get up here and they ramble. And they talk, they talk about the latest news headline or they'll rip some devotional off. But to study the Word personally and to receive what God wants you to say to your congregation on a week-to-week basis is grueling at times. Like, there are times when you just, oh, it, it, it's a joy, but like you just, you so badly want to know and you get these blocks and it's, just, it's hours and hours and hours of preparation and prayer and reading and study if you take it seriously. And guys, let me assure you, Dylan takes it seriously. I mean, the guy reads more books than most people I've ever known. <laughs> um, and it's not because he wants to go show you how much he knows. He wants to be equipped to equip. I love it. We need it. And it doesn't come easy. And guys, we valued the word here early on. We valued it. We wanted someone to come in who could be fully devoted to the job. God showed me after a while that as, as more and more needs began to arise, as we began to grow, He showed me we needed someone full time. We needed it. And He confirmed it. And so we, we, He led us to Dylan and we reached out. Um, and He accepted the, the opportunity. Um, and He's come in and, and he's, he's devoted Himself to the study and the teaching of the Word as as well as, as, as the other shepherding and leading aspects of the pastoral ministry guys, which are many. And we could spend a lot of time on that. Many times things that are hidden from the congregation at large, things that people don't even know about, the counseling, the phone calls, the meetings, like it all happens. And it doesn't happen on Sunday morning. And many times it happens after working hours. And you're staying up late or you're getting up early. It's, it's not the easiest job. And so God, God told us, He showed us, John, you can't do this. And remember, this wasn't the plan anyway, so it was really kind of pretty easy. Like it was kind of, it was kind of scary and trying to find a guy that we felt like had the DNA, but like we knew God, God was going to bring people in. We didn't know how, but He did. And hence we have Dylan and, and then Jay and Jim. Guys, and because these guys, and because they serve us in this capacity, the Word says we should therefore, that we therefore owe them a living. And guys, we should want to. We should want to bless them with that. So, getting even more practical, how much do we pay a guy? Right? I mean, you hear of these guys, pastors that are making hundreds of thousands down to 20,000 or less. You know, they're full-time. I mean, that's not part-time. I mean, they're guys that are making, you know, barely making it. Barely, but not really able to make it if it weren't for other people just giving graciously on the side. But anywhere from, you know, a lower wage to like, I'm talking a lot of money. Guys making in the millions, some of them. So how much do you pay a guy? And I think there's different approaches you take, that we take to this. I think I've, I've read different uh, opinions from guys, very wise men who have written about this, and um, I think there's a lot of different approaches. But I just kind of something hit me, and I just I just kind of took my own approach. I just looked up the median household income for a family in Oklahoma. What does a what does a normal family in Oklahoma make? Um, and I'm talking both you know both parents if they're if they're married. Normal household income is around forty five thousand three hundred dollars. And that was as of 2013, so it's probably 46 or 47 now. And as many of you know, um, especially those of you with kids, that's not a whole lot. Um, it's doable, but that, le- that leaves very little extra, if any. Probably not any. But there's, there's another detail that we need to consider here, because th- th- there's something else we need to consider, and, and, and bear with me here, but Dylan has a master's degree. Do you know that? He has a master's degree from Southern Seminary. 
Masters of Divinity, right? Um, and that's a legitimate master's degree from one of the best, if not the best, seminaries in the world. Southern Seminary is loaded with men who love God and who write commentaries that I personally read and just love that thousands of people read. And, I mean, these guys are legit. They're professors that are building into young men, making disciples, churning out future pastors that have the right approach, that understand what's required of them, that are not in it for the money, that are in it for the equipping of the people of God and for the leading and shepherding of those people. And this is where he came from. This is where, this is where we got him, Southern Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky. So I looked up the average starting salary of someone with a master's degree. Um, and there's lots of different categories. This is not quite as easy. So I took the top two and the bottom two and I averaged them. The top two were computer science and business administration. The bottom two were elementary, teacher education, and sociology. I averaged those out and the number came to $58,900. 58.9. Dylan makes 33000 a year. And I have never heard him complain. And we pay his insurance, that's about 150 a month, and we give him professional expense, which is about another 150 and that just covers resources like books and things that he needs to study the Word, and that sometimes he'll turn and, and purchase for small group leaders or for whatever occasion, but it's just a, you know, it's a tax benefit. If you, if you claim it up front, then you don't have to pay taxes on the money that you spend on those things, so we provide that. Um, it's a benefit, but you, but you total all that up, guys, that's 36000 total value. And that's not much. Catherine stays home with the kids, two kids. Um, guys, wouldn't it be neat if we could at least get him up to the normal medium household income? I mean, just the normal medium? Not masters? I, I, I think that would be fair with what he means to this church. You know, even in a church this size, guys, that's very doable. And granted, we've had some major expenses with the building over the past year. Um, because of that, we weren't really able to increase wages at the time. But even with those expenses, guys, I think we could still afford to get him a little closer to that mark in the very near future. It may require a little more sacrifice from this body. And no, Dylan didn't put me up to this. In fact, I had, I had to text him about what he was making because I forgot it's been that long since we've talked about it. So this wasn't planned. Well, it was planned by me, but not by him. Um, and you know, guys, I'm, I'm aware that there are plenty in this church who give and, and hopefully who give sacrificially. And I know there are probably those who don't give much at all. I don't spend time studying the giving sheet or whatever that is. Jared and Sophia are great. They handle our finances and they do pretty well with it. But I just want to challenge you guys to consider what it is you value. What do you value in life? Do you value the Word? Is it valuable to you to come here every week knowing that you're going to hear from someone who's invested the hour so that you can understand what God, our Creator, what God has said and is saying to us through His Word? That's a big deal. Like, God has spoken and He has appointed men to communicate that in clarity and truth and through the power of the Spirit so that we can know and be equipped and be used in this world to be the light that we're supposed to be. It's vital and it's valuable.
And it's easy, guys. I think it's easy to take it for granted. It really is. But we shouldn't. We shouldn't take it for granted. And guys, there, there's, there's a few ways practically to determine what's valuable to you. Um, there are other ways to, to do this, but just here are a few practical things. Just look at your bank statement or your credit card statement. We, we like the rewards card, so we run everything through those rewards cards so that we pay it off at the end of the month and get the rewards. I'm sure they hate us. But look at your bank statement, look at your credit card statement, look at your calendar. How did you spend your money and your time this last month? Sure, there, there are things outside the church that are necessary and valuable and that are worth our time and money. We have to eat and pay the bills and provide for ourselves and our families. But guys, spiritually speaking, we also have to understand and be taught the Word. We also need to be fed spiritually or we won't survive. We'll have our salvation and we'll live in defeat. It's so important. We can't survive without it. Paul thinks it is. And he in no way, by choosing to pay his own way, is communicating that it's not. And he goes to great lengths to express that. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Once again, Paul goes back to Deuteronomy 25, 4. Paul's talking about money here, guys. He even uses the term wages. And he's saying that the guy who labors to teach and preach is worthy of double honor. Guys, this is God's word. Why? Because the guy that's doing that is giving us what we need to survive as Christians in a broken world. He's given us more than, than just what we need to survive practically in the day-to-day -day things with eating and drinking and those things. He's giving us what we need to truly live. He's reaching into that realm. Providing our needs in that realm which will be there when we die in this one. It's the most important thing that we can focus on. That realm. He's given us the Word. And is there anything more valuable than that? Jesus Himself is called the Word. John in His Gospel says, In the beginning was what? The Word. He was speaking of Jesus. Hebrews 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken to us by His Son. In these last days, God has given us His Word. He's spoken to us by His Son and by the Holy Spirit that His Son left behind in His place. He spoke through men like Paul so we would know how to live. And the man that devotes himself full-time to this ministry is deserving of a livelihood from the church he is serving. And I'm not talking about barely getting by. In his final example, Paul says this in 13 and 14. He says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That means they should make their money from their preaching. The gospel. Guys, this is the Lord's command. And therefore, this is a pastor's right. And honestly... This is the church's obligation. It is our obligation before God to do this. Now granted, with new church starts and situations of gross poverty in certain countries and things like this, the church may not be able to provide for a full-time pastor and he may be required to work another job to earn a living and God will give grace where it's needed there. But this should be the exception, guys, in this country. This should be the exception, not the rule. In most cases, and I say this from experience, the 
The goal should be for every church to get to a point where you can provide for someone full time. Really the only situation in which a pastor shouldn't receive an income from a church that's capable is if he for some reason or conviction personally decides against it. I have personally decided against that. If you guys want to talk about that after the service, you can catch me and we'll talk about it. Um, I feel like that's what God's done in my heart, so I'm going to do that. Um, But the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That was a right. But we happen to find Paul in a position where he's opting out of this right. Okay, so we're kind of coming back to the trail. He's opting out of this right. And he tells us his reason in the second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. How are we doing on time? And then, continuing his thought, we see him expand on it a little more. Um, In verse 15 and 16, where he says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now guys, even the commentators agree that this is a very difficult passage. I mean, to say the least, it's awkward grammatically. Um, A lot of scholars just see it kind of as a a break in thought here. Um, Where Paul says in 15, for I would rather die, it seems like he just kind of stops the thought. He just kind of pauses. You know, almost as if his emotions are getting the best of him. Um, Why would that happen? You know, why would Paul get so emotional at this point? Now, now this is just speculation, okay? Just speculation. But I think it has some credence. Some think Paul gets so emotional here because he's reflecting back on his past, on his violent persecution of the church. We know of a very specific situation where the men who, who stoned Stephen, they laid their cloaks at Paul's feet as he watched in approval before he met Jesus. It could have been that Paul was reflecting back on events like this one. And now he finds himself in the same place as those early martyrs were, being ready to give his very life for the advance of the gospel. And the fact that he was responsible for taking the lives of men who were of that persuasion could have been piercing him to his soul at this point when he's writing this letter. Once again, this is speculation. But if this was his line of thinking, I can see where he would get emotional. He finds himself in in Stephen's place willing to be stoned to death for the name of Christ. He was executed, by the way. Now again, in these verses um, coming up, I'm not entirely convinced um, that what I'm about to say is what Paul had in mind. I mean, this is still, we're kind of still dealing with the the difficult section. Um, But what I think he means here, when he says, I think in verse, oh gosh, I I lost it, 17 or 18, or actually towards the end there, he says, um, he uses this word boasting twice in this section. He says, but really, um, and, and really what he's doing is, he, is he's displaying great humility, guys. He's, he's using the word boasting, but he's not really boasting. And he makes, it, he makes it clear. He says, you know, although he feels strongly about the church's responsibility to provide for his, his pastors, he, he is in no way writing this um, in, in, in order to convince them to start paying him. He says, this is my ground for boasting. But then he says, actually, preaching the gospel gives me no ground for boasting. So, he's saying, look, I'm not writing this because I want your money. It's, he's saying it's my ground for boasting. I think what he's expressing is, is for lack of a better term, like almost a, a good pride in that like, preaching the gospel is worth it. Like, that's, that's worth it. 
And so he says, this is my ground for boasting. But then what does he say? Actually, preaching the gospel gives me no ground for boasting. Um, so what I think he means here, it's, it's hard, but what I think he means here is that the gospel itself strips us from any right to boast. The gospel message strips all credit from men. And what does it do? It, it shows us who really deserves it, right? It takes any grounds for boasting away in that it points to our utterly lost and helpless condition. And then it turns and points to God's love and justice and grace as it strips us from any credit that we would surely want to take for our salvation. And it gives it to God. The gospel will strip you from boasting. The message itself will. And I think this is what Paul's saying. So if we boast, we boast in Him. We boast in the message. The message that ironically strips all selfish man-centered boasting from us. I think Paul is saying my boast is that I have no boast because all I have is the gospel. And I've taken enough from the church in my former life. That could have been a strange thought. Maybe, maybe not. All he wants is a listening ear. He wants the fruit of saved souls for his labor. That was his choice. It's certainly not the norm and shouldn't be required or expected from anyone else in that position. And Paul communicates that clearly. And even more, he says, necessity is laid upon me. A God-given urgency is in my heart. And woe to me if I fail to respond to that. Woe to me if I fail to preach this gospel I've been entrusted with. And then in 17, we see Paul kind of come back to the subject at hand. And we're almost done here. He says, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul reminds his readers that he has a reward. For one, they are his reward. Heaven is his reward. God himself is his greatest reward. And Paul speaks of these exact things elsewhere in his letters. But willingly or unwillingly, guys, the bottom line for Paul is that he is a steward of the gospel and he has set his mind to steward it well. And his immediate reward, specifically his reward from the Corinthians, is that as we see in verse 18, he has the opportunity to set the example for what he's been saying throughout this entire book. And that is to lay down anything in your life, any right you may think you have, if it hinders the progress of the gospel. Even if it means laying down your rights as a believer. Make love the guiding principle in your life and make everything, even your rights before God, submit to that. Love God and love others. Consider God and consider others. Yield to God. Yield to your brother for the sake of the gospel. You know, this is heavy stuff, guys. It's easy to talk about, but it's a lot harder to implement. Because there's this thing called the flesh, which makes this hard to do at times. In fact, no man has ever perfectly loved this way. Except for one. His name is Jesus. And He's the King. He always has been, and He always will be. But He too chose to lay down His rights. He chose to step down from His throne in heaven. He chose to subject Himself to the cruelty of this world that hated Him, the temptation of the devil, the persecution and hatred of His very own people, and the pain of the cross. And for what? Why did He give up His rights? For the same reason. For love. Because He loved us. He put us before Himself. The King, the King of the universe put His sinful and rebellious servants before Himself because of His great love for us. And ultimately the great glory of His Father. And He asks us to do the same. To put others before ourselves. 
to put our neighbors before ourselves, to put our co-workers before ourselves, to put our pastor and his family and their provision before ourselves. That glorifies our Father. That brings a God who seems to be so far away up close. This is His character. This magnifies God. It glorifies our Father when we love like He loves. That is why He made us. We bring Him close to the world when we choose to live that way. I'll let another passage from a different letter Paul wrote um, close us today. It's in Philippians. A lot of you are familiar with it. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. It says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Ephesians 2 tells us because of the great love with which He loved us. Let's let that love govern our lives, guys. Let's pray. Father, we, we are humbled to hear this, Lord. I know in my life that I don't love like this like I should. God, I pray that where we fall short in this way, You would change us. You would convict us. You would just lovingly show us as You are so faithful to do, God, how to live. How to love people. How to love our pastor, our pastors. How, how to love our neighbor, our co-workers, our families. How to do what we were created to do. To reflect You. God, You are love. And You want that love to work through us. God, I just pray that we would yield to that, that we would yield to you, that we would yield to our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, God, that we would show that love, that you would receive the glory, and that many would come to know you through that. In Christ's name, amen.